All right, I think we'll go ahead and get started since uh, it is past 2.30. Good afternoon. My name is Dana Wothy. Appreciate you being here for this session on church finances. So if that's not what you thought you were going to hear, then uh, this is your chance to bail. Um, hope things have been going well for you through all the sessions so far. Um, I know there's several other good concurrent sessions right now with good speakers, so appreciate you taking the time to be here. Hopefully, the talking points today will be relevant and uh, informative for you. Um, I recognize a few familiar faces, so it's good to have you here. Um, there should be some suggestions and recommendations that will come out of this time together, but I also realize that um, everybody's situation and environment may be different, and so some things may just need to be tailored to the environment that you are in. Um, I will give some examples of some things just uh, more pertinent to our environment here, but um, you know you can decide how that might fit in with your organization. Um, just a couple quick things. You can ask questions as we go. Feel free to do that, but there will also be some time at the end for you to be able to ask questions. Uh, first of all, did everybody get a copy of the handout or have it readily available online? If not, let me know. I've got some sitting here and there's some outside the door. Everybody all set? All right, and everybody I assume can see the screen. <laughs> there will be a few slides that have some small fonts on them, so uh, that's why we went ahead and had the hard copy available for you as well. Uh, by way of background, I have been a member here at Inner City since 1992. Um, basically, it was um, a move from Cincinnati here with my family that um, through a job situation that uh, brought us here. However, my wife is uh, from here originally. Her father happens to be one of the founding members of Inner City. So they've been around a long time. Uh, she taught at the high school for 27 years. Um, she's a graduate of the high school along with her siblings and um, all of our children went there. Uh, and they're all still involved in the church here. So it's um, been a good opportunity to serve here. Um, I was on the executive committee several times for one year terms, also on the deacon board several, multiple times for three year terms. Um, so there's a lot of connections. I became the business manager here in July of 2020, so just over three years ago. And um, my predecessors did a great job of having a lot of things in place. And um, there had only been, I think, two individuals in the position for, um, I think, around 25, 30 years. So um, that worked out well. Um, as far as my educational background, I have a BS in accounting from Bob Jones University. and um, also then uh, went through Michigan State's executive MBA program with the Eli School of Business um, work experience. I spent 11 years in public accounting uh, with KPMG and a local firm in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, through a client connection there, um, I accepted a job with a law firm here in Detroit. Um, in order to get into law firm administration. So I've served with three law firms now, ranging in size from 50 to 250 attorneys, um, basically as either the CFO or the chief operating officer. Um, you may have noticed on the slide that um, I'm in active status with my CPA, and that is just that I haven't been keeping up with the 40 hours of um, continuing education on an annual basis, but I do have my CPA. Uh, as far as the workshop today, we are hoping to cover several things that are related to church finances that will hopefully um, be of interest to you. Uh, we will talk about uh, financial statements, the budgeting process, um, also some of the things related to internal controls and uh, maintaining segregation of duties. Um, we'll try not to get into too much detail um, just because of the uh, time limit and also just making sure we're trying to cover things that would be of interest to you uh, so that hopefully you'll have a few takeaways at the end of the session. Um, recording of financial activity is typically impacted by the nature and size of the environment that you're in and as far as the ministries. Um, I don't know how much you're familiar with inner city. I, you obviously know we have a seminary. Um, as well as the church here, we also have um, the school that's K through 12 with just under 300 students. And we also have a mission board, Grace Baptist Mission, that is um, tied to the church where we handle all the finances for a number of missionaries. 
And um, we don't really do it as a traditional mission board. Um, and the fact that we don't take a percentage or anything of the revenue that's generated, um, it's basically a ministry of the church to be able to serve those, those missionaries. The um, one thing I'll start with is internal controls. Um, and, and I'll mention sort of the Grace Baptist Mission site is sort of an example of that um, since we act as a fiduciary really for the mission board, uh, we have a lot of different responsibilities than just taking care of the ministries with the church, school, and seminary. Um, and the reason for that is because we're taking in a lot of funding that comes in from the outside. Uh, individuals, foundations, other churches. Um, so while we support the missionaries that are under the mission board, we also are collecting a lot of funds uh, on a monthly basis from other um, individuals, churches, et cetera, on their behalf. So we have a separate bank account, separate reporting and everything. Um, the missionaries all get separate accounting every month of all of the information as far as the revenue they're receiving, where it's coming from, um, and then we take care of their work reimbursements and everything else. So that gives us an opportunity um, to have a ministry there. And I mention that because none of that really falls under the financial reporting of the church itself and the school and the seminary, um, which we do on a consolidated basis um, so that we are able to report to the deacon board and the executive committee um, where we stand as far as our finances. So it's really... Um, you know, sort of a mix. Um, all of our ministries have different software applications, which makes it a little challenging um, just because the software is really um, designed to be specific to what the nature of their, um, like the high school has and elementary school has their own software. The seminary has its own software. The church has its software. Um, but we are able to roll everything up and consolidate it into one uh, financial package. As far as internal controls, you may have heard the term segregation of duties, and it is important in a church environment. Sometimes it's easier to be done than in other cases based on staffing and um, people who are involved in the process. It may be volunteers, maybe members of your church, um, maybe employees, one or more employees of the church, and it also um, may be an outside third party if you have somebody outside handling, processing your payroll or handling some of the other responsibilities. Um, in general, you wanna try to avoid the same person having responsibilities for cash receipts and cash disbursements. Um, so if you're able to do that, that is definitely preferable. Um, it's a good way to sort of segregate those two responsibilities. Um, if possible, you may have a third person that's involved in doing a lot of the approval process. So there's more than one set of eyes um, reviewing everything and going through the information. It's also um, probably a good idea to, as far as check signing authority, um, if you can, to have somebody else who's maybe a check signer or other individuals above certain amounts. Um, in my case here, I only have check signing authority up to $250. Anything above that has to have a second signature. And in our case here, we have members of our pastoral staff um, as well as our school administrator who are authorized to be signers on the checks. Um, as far as um, cash receipts, um, we have the deacon board that is involved in counting offerings. We also have a staff employee that takes in some of the money that comes in throughout the week. Um, and some of that includes payments on school bills and some other things besides offerings. Um, we actually have in place, um, as far as, um, with working with the bank, we can do all the online banking. So we actually scan most of the checks that we receive throughout the week directly to the bank as part of our deposits. Um, so that minimizes a lot of the uh, handling and also additional um, costs of taking everything to the bank. Some banks, if you have, uh, if you drop off deposits, we'll charge you a fee for that. Um, but by having the um, online system in place, it gets there a lot faster as far as being recorded by the bank and getting processed. Um, on the cash disbursement side, we have a separate person that's basically responsible for those, res um, those duties. And then everything that they do as far as um, disbursements um, requires my approval in advance of checks being generated. So that adds another uh, layer of internal controls. 
Um, but depending on the size of your church, you may or may not have the luxury of um, having enough personnel involved to be able to segregate all of those duties. And fortunately, there are some mitigating factors um, that should give you some peace and comfort, even if that's the case. Obviously, if not all the cash receipts for offerings are getting recorded and you're giving out giving statements to your members, then in all likelihood, somebody's going to say, oh, wait a minute, my giving statement's not right or the, the information isn't accurate. Um, if you have vendors that aren't getting paid um, on that side of things, then you typically are going to have situations where vendors are going to be calling saying, where's my money? So there are a lot of things that can at least help mitigate the fact that um, you may not be able to have all of the normal internal controls in place um, so that um, the same occurs with uh, payroll processing. And you know, obviously people are getting pay stubs and paychecks and if they aren't, then they're probably gonna complain about that. Um, so I think that uh, covers a lot of the internal control. Are there any questions on any of that? Yes. You mentioned that you have check signing abilities up to 250. That seems small when I think about like reoccurring payments, uh, bills, things like that. Does that mean every time the electric bill does get paid, you have to get a password to sign with you? Or are there certain things that basically you have the authority because they've been done once and approved and now it's an ongoing? Yeah, good question. Because we do have some bill paying all set up electronically that recurs on a monthly basis and it's either hitting credit cards or it's getting um, taken out of the bank account automatically through ACHs. So yeah, a lot of that is set up. So especially a lot of the smaller dollar amounts they're able to get processed through without. Uh, but they, we do have them sign quite a few checks on a, a monthly basis. And the other thing that gets a little complicated is we actually have four different credit card processing vendors involved with our ministries, mainly because some of it is specific. Um, the seminary uses Stripe um, for here at the church if people are making payments on school bills or if they are, um, we have an annual event called the Charger Classic, which is a golf outing that basically is a fundraiser for the school. And there's a lot of things that happen at that event that people can um, contribute to the school. We do that all with Square. Um, so we have that capability as well. And in that case, um, for school payments, we charge them the credit card processing fee. Um, but we also have payfor.net, which is a company that integrates with all of our school software so that when um, families make payments on their school accounts for their children, it automatically posts to the school accounts and we aren't having to do all of that processing. And then when the pandemic hit, we ended up needing to have a, and you probably remember that um, they really tried to do away with handling cash, especially in schools and things during that time. So then we ended up with a fourth product um, called Easy School Pay that was all related to um, taking in payments for school lunches because uh, we have a school lunch every day, different classes are sponsoring it and get the revenue from it for class trips and things. So it gets sort of crazy that way too, that we actually have four different uh, credit card processing. But yeah, a lot of it is set up so that we can you know, try to minimize how much check signing is required. All right, uh, we're gonna transition to, right. That is a good point. Um, Dwight was a member here for many, many, many years, was in public accounting for a long time. But he's also involved in his church finances in Florida currently. And um, that is a good suggestion because um, the other thing with payroll taxes is the fact that um, the management team is actually responsible for any unpaid payroll taxes. So you do see a lot of environments where people are really careful about making sure payroll taxes get paid to avoid that potential personal liability. Um, so yeah, good point. Thanks, Dwight. Um, all right, we're going to shift to... Um, Sorry, real, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. On internal controls, and maybe you'll speak to this some other time, but on the use of like church credit cards and spending by staff members, do you have any systems in place for that? Yes, um, it's a good question. We have... I hate to admit it, but I think we have almost uh, more than 15 church credit cards that are out there um, between the school administration, 
all the pastoral staff um, and the seminary professors. There's a lot of different um, you know, connections there. And basically, um, we get a monthly reporting that we're able to download from the bank. Um, we then um, send out information to each individual who has a credit card. They then have to submit all of that information back with the documentation as far as the nature of the expense. And then they um, assign it to different general ledger accounts, depending on what it's for, if it's a church activity for the adult fellowship or whatever, travel related to the seminary, um, purchasing books for the seminary. Um, they have to basically account for all of the expenses that show up on their credit card and the nature of them and, um, so that we can record them properly, but also that we can verify that they're not personal charges and other things. Um, and every once in a while, in a few cases, somebody will accidentally use their church card instead. And we use a clearing account that um, basically then puts it there so that we don't lose track of it. And then when they reimburse it, it just goes back against that clearing account. But yeah, good question. Uh, back to like the $250 and with bill pay and all that, because that's something we wrestled with too. Like, how do you, like, what's the, what would you say is the purpose of a second signer on Ultrix above 250 if one person can be setting up bill pay and a lot of other things just with online? Yeah, and I guess the major control there is you're generating financial statements on some regular basis, whether it's monthly, bi monthly, quarterly. Um, so you do have some sort of control of at least being able to compare the expenses to what they've been in the past, if there's any aberrations um, that you, especially from budget. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest thing there is still the person who can set them up, has, I still have to approve them. So it still goes through that process. There's still technically two people that set up any bill pay anyways. Right. All right, good. Um, I didn't really go through the whole, but it, since you have it online, I'm sure you probably saw it or on the handouts of what we were trying to cover today. We're now gonna jump into uh, financial reporting. Um, and this was one reason I made sure you had the handouts or could get to it electronically because the font gets pretty small on this. Um, as far as financial reporting, um, there may be differences in your environment as far as how often there is reporting. We generate monthly financials here um, that are reviewed by both the executive committee and the deacon board. Um, the annual financial statements are um, presented to the congregation at the annual business meeting. Um, typically, your financial statements will include a balance, at least a balance sheet and income statement. Um, this is a balance sheet that would be included with those. Um, one thing about a balance sheet, it is a point in time um, representation of the financial information. And what I mean by that, it's basically a snapshot as of a specific date. So in this case, you'll see that um, the information provided here is as of September 30, August 31st and the prior year in. And one reason we do the reporting that way here is that way when it's reviewed monthly, you aren't having to, you can just sort of see what's changed on the balance sheet from the prior month. Um, as well as then being able to see the comparison to year in because you can have some significant fluctuations in some of those amounts over a period of months. And really one thing you're interested in is what changed since last month. So um, we generally here present the financial statements, the balance sheet um, with the current month, the prior month, and then the prior year in um, is, a, is a way to um, at least have some additional perspective and comparison. Um, in addition, we, um, and I sort of compare it to if you're taking a picture on your phone, that's a picture that you're taking as of a point in time. Uh, when we get into the income statement and the statement of cash flows, that's like taking a video on your phone. It's covering a period of time. Um, and so um, I'll explain a little more of that later. But um, the balance sheet is always a point in time uh, update on where you stand financially. Um, in this case, um, we break it out. Usually it's broken out between current and non-current. So you'll see on the balance sheet, there's current assets here. There's non-current assets that are down here under the fixed assets. There's the current liabilities and then there's non-current liabilities. Obviously, one nice thing about accounting is there's debits and credits and your debits and credits should always equal. 
So when you're reconciling everything, everything should sort of tie out not only within the balance sheet, but then all of your financial statements. Um, so here you'll see the breakdown. Um, so current assets, like if you have cash on hand or short-term securities or investments, then that would be covered as far as having your um, things that would be current. Accounts receivable and prepaids are usually current because um, it's usually things that people are owing for a month or two and not for more than a year. Um, the long-term, non-current assets and liabilities are usually things that mature beyond one year. Um, so that's usually the definition as far as breaking things down between current and non-current. So obviously, if you have fixed assets, land buildings, improvements, equipment, and furnishings, those are things that you're expecting to last more than a year and would be listed as non-current. And then on the liability side, your non-current liabilities, there's a, if you have some long-term debt, um, obviously part of that long-term debt's due within a year. Uh, the rest of it is due over a longer period of time. So in this case, the amount of the debt that's due within a year is in, up here under current. And then the rest of it that's due over the remaining years is in long-term debt. Um, in a normal and corporate environment, you would have an equity section of the balance sheet um, typically with not-for-profits, you have net assets, which is basically then just accounting for the difference between your total assets and your liabilities. That difference is your net assets so that the two sides are, the amounts are tying together and balancing. Any questions on that? All right. Um, then as far as... Um, the income statement, um, there's a lot of different variations of income statements as far as what you are reporting. Usually there's some pretty common categories for churches of what you're including in income. Uh, it might be offerings, it may be missions, you may do a Christmas offering. Uh, you may have some other special initiatives that you um, track separately. So um, often you'll see you know, sort of a number of revenues um, categories. Like here we have school income, we have the seminary income and some other things that are um, in addition to the more traditional for the church. And in our case, um, this is a statement for the month and nine months. So we're actually comparing actual to budget for the current month. And this isn't any of our financial information, but it's set up the way that we report. Um, so obviously, um, we have actual budget comparisons for the month and then for year to date so that you can see how you're doing um, compared to budget um, for both time frames. A lot of times you will break down expenses into different categories. You may track things in separate general ledger accounts um, for specific detail, but a lot of times when you roll that up into your financial statements, you may combine some things together. For example, benefits may include health insurance, dental insurance, vision insurance if you have it, if you have long-term disability coverage on employees, um, if you have life insurance coverage. So those may all be recorded separately in general ledger accounts, but then you can roll them up so that when you're doing all of your reporting, and that just keeps your income statement from being three or four pages long. Um, so that gives you an opportunity then to just have a lot of your major categories listed and then being able to compare them. And then obviously you can sort of investigate if you have large variances to try to determine why that is. And there can be a lot of explanations for that. It could be you budgeted certain things. Um, I know in the past couple of years, we're doing the budget in December to have it available for approval in January. Well, then you find out school camps in August instead of July or in June instead of July. So you may have variances that are occurring just because of the timing difference as far as when things actually occur versus when you originally budget them. So we um, you know, can sometimes run into that. We also um, are able to budget. We have a bi-monthly payroll system. So a couple months a year, we actually have three payrolls instead of two payrolls. So we obviously in the individual monthly budgets will include that so that we're able to track um, the budgeting and be able to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples. But you will have variances that occur. Uh, utilities is a good example. 
Um, it's not uncommon if you all of a sudden have a really hot summer or a really cold winter and you were basically using the last couple of years as your basis for budgeting utilities, um, then all of a sudden you might have some bigger variances. Um, also, if rates take off, natural gas prices jump way up and some things. Um, obviously, it's just you explain it. That's why and um, you're able to you know, give that explanation. Um, trying to think what else on... You know, obviously, payroll tends to be the biggest expense in, um, on the income statement for most ministries. Uh, it's not uncommon for it to be 50 to 75% of your total expenses, depending on the size of the church and if you have other ministries involved. And then um, you know, sometimes, depending on how your budget is established, um, a lot of expenses may be paid quarterly or some other time frame than monthly, so that way you're able to budget it in the appropriate months and um, explain those variances. And a lot of times in a church environment, um, compensation is always not sort of market compensation compared to a lot of positions. Um, so benefits is often a way that you can provide some extra um, you know, benefit to individuals as far as to supplement their, their compensation. Um, we try to protect a lot of our employees from larger medical bills and some things because obviously we know they're not you know, making huge amounts of money to be able to, to pay a lot of that. Any questions? All right. Uh, let's go to statement of cash flows. And this isn't always a statement that you will see in financial statements. Um, some churches do it. But it basically is reconciling changes in the income statement with changes in the balance sheet and sort of proving everything out as far as rolling forward your cash. So you'll notice here, a lot of times the statement will just begin with net income or ministry income. Um, in this case, I've included the revenue and expenses just so you can sort of see how it compares to, because here's the total revenue year to date and the expenses. Um, so it starts with that number, those two numbers. You get down to the net ministry income. And then adjustments to that are basically things that are impacting the balance sheet that didn't flow through the income statement. Uh, so you'll see here, purchase of fixed assets, capital expenditures, payment of long-term debt. So if we go back to the balance sheet, if you take the fixed assets that were 943,000 at the end of September and, sub and subtracted from the 939 at the end of December, that's the 4,105 that you see here as the purchase of fixed assets. And with the long-term debt, you can take, if you take the current portion and non-current portion and add those two together, the 641 and the 409380 as of the end of September, and subtract the two amounts at the end of December of 61,450 and 425,080, that then gives you the 13,050. So it's basically reconciling everything between the income statement and the balance sheet so that when you get to the bottom, you'll see this net increase or decrease in cash and investments. And then when added to the beginning balance at the end of December, you get the new balance at the end of September. So this 260 and the 303, if you go back to the balance sheet, there's the 260 in cash and investments, and there's the 303 at the end of September. So it's basically just reconciling everything so that you're accounting for all the activity that's occurred and being able to reconcile between the balance sheet income statement and statement of cash flows. That all makes sense. <laughs> Eyes glazing over. <laughs> But it is just sort of another proof of your rolling forward your cash and accounting for everything and that they reconcile. So I should have probably focused uh, a little more on cash basis because obviously we, having the school here, we have some people that pay the school bill for the entire year in August. <laughs> so then you have other people who you're you know, sort of having to track down and get amounts to get paid on a monthly basis. So we pretty much 
are in a position we almost have to record everything on the accrual basis. We're, we're accounting for accounts receivable, we're accounting for prepaids, and a lot of other things just because of the different pieces of it. But that is true. A lot of churches, especially smaller churches, are on the cash basis. Um, you're basically just tracking. And then things you have to watch out for a little bit there is all of a sudden they can start holding bills if they aren't paying them. Things can look good for several months of the year, and all of a sudden you get to year end, or you find out in January they haven't paid the last three months of utilities or other things. And yeah, it helped them stay under budget. They're right on track. But then you realize you've got all these additional amounts that are still owing to vendors. So um, if you are on the cash basis, you need to sort of watch to make sure things are getting recorded on a monthly basis so that uh, there aren't any surprises, especially near year end. All right, um, at this point, we're gonna shift a little bit to budgeting. Um, oh, question. Um, our church treasurer keeps her books to um, that's obviously helpful. Um, it may be adequate. Um, the I don't know if everybody heard the question, but it. Um, she mentioned that they take their all the accounting from the church to an outside third-party tax person who then reviews it on an annual basis just to sort of make sure things look right and everything. Um, you're still sort of relying on the fact that everything got there to that person. So it's one of those, you don't know what you don't know. So I think it's helpful. It's probably a good thing to do versus not doing anything. Um, I'm not sure you could totally rely on that, though, to be to feel like it's you're totally covered. We have, we have people who right. We have a, we take two offerings on the Sunday that we have communion. Mm -hmm. And what would you suggest that we do because we only have one set of plates, like offering plates. I think right at this present moment, they just sort of put the money back in the... Yeah, that's a... Right. Yeah, um... Well, what we do, and it's like I say, it's not always what we do is what you should do, but what we do is we actually will have our regular offering, and then at the end of the Lord's Supper, we take up a second offering. We count that one totally separate and everything, so we know how much was really for that. And I'm sure this never happens at any other church, but some people who forgot to put their offering in, and the first offering puts it in the second offering, for the, and we use it for a deacon's fund. But we can easily tell when that happens because you notice right away it's the amount they give every Sunday. So if that happens, that their regular offering check ends up in a in a Lord's Supper offering, we'll then pull those back out and count it towards their regular offering, and now not count it towards the Lord's Supper or Deacon's Fund offering. Does that answer your question well, of how you're trying to keep them separate? I'm, no, I'm just saying Right. So who who has it from that for that time period? I think the man that's running the eating group. Um Yeah, you could I guess um lock it up somewhere. I mean when we have our Sunday morning offering, we lock it in a safe until we have the Sunday night offering. And then once the Sunday night offering is collected, then it all goes together and gets counted by a group of three deacons. So in that case, we are sort of keeping it locked up from the morning service till the evening service. Um, yeah, if there's a way you could do that um, and keep it locked up until it's counted, that would be helpful for sure. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, um, just a few comments on budgeting because we're, uh, we're getting close here. Um, obviously, a budget is just a budget. We talked a little bit about it already, and there are going to be things that are variances and aberrations from what you anticipated. You may decide to do a new activity in a year that you haven't done in the past, so it wasn't budgeted. 
So it's, it's common to have variances. You may also have situations where um, if money comes in on Friday, and especially like if Monday's a bank holiday, it may not actually hit the bank till the following Tuesday. And if your statement's cut off at month in and month in happened over the weekend, you, know, you may have some aberrations with your budgeting just because of the timing of things and how the, um, when it's recorded by the bank, even with credit card processing is a good example because it may get processed by the third party on a certain date and applied in like our case to school accounts. But it may be a few days later before it actually gets deposited into our bank account. So you are going to have some variances from budget just based on timing. Um, but if you can at least try to um, you know, do your best to put it in the months and guesstimate what is going to happen when, um, and then include that in your operating budget, um, it's very helpful, especially if you're able to budget monthly. Um, that way you have a pretty good idea as you're going along of where you stand. Um, typically, you want to try to be a little bit conservative, I would guess, with your offering budgets for the year. Um, Sometimes you may have a large offering in a prior year. Somebody passes away and gives money to the church from their estate or whatever. Um, so you may want to take out some things that are aberrations in any year when you're doing the next year's budget. Um, sometimes you factor in whether there's four or five Sundays in a month and how that would impact your budget on a monthly basis. Um, that may not be as true anymore if you're able to do online giving and some things, which is happening in a lot of churches now after the pandemic because um, people may be doing recurring gifts and, and offerings so that you're getting it spread out and sort of balanced more on a monthly basis. Um, but you still tend to have some um, additional offerings come in in the months where you have five Sundays. So a lot of that you can factor in when you're putting your budget together. Um, you know, if the economy is starting to take a hit because of higher interest rates, job losses, um, members in your church maybe are um, you know, out of work for a period of time. That would also be another reason to try to make sure you're being conservative with your revenue budget. Um, on the expense side, um, you know, a lot of times you're able to budget most of your expenses. I mean, personnel, you generally know who's there and their compensation. Uh, if you decide to add a staff person, obviously that would impact your budget. Um, so it's really just trying to track everything and um, if you can, get information from your vendors ahead of time of cost increases for the next year, uh, especially for benefit programs, health insurance, and those kinds of things, so that you can at least uh, be prepared to include that in your budget and make sure that you have that accounted for. Um, I would like to emphasize, if at all possible, that you can have some form of retirement program for, your, for employees in a church environment. It's very helpful. A lot of people are not very good about saving themselves for their retirement. Um, and I know people who have been in ministry their entire lives and they get to retirement age, decide to retire, but then end up having to still work for several years because they really haven't done enough to save for their retirement. So if, um, you know, if at all possible, I think it's a really good idea for churches to try to have some kind of a retirement program for their employees to help supplement what they may be contributing themselves if they are in fact um, contributing. Um, you know, it's just, you see a lot of cases where people just aren't disciplined enough to do a lot of that on their own. And um, that can be really helpful to the employees, especially long-term. Um, it's especially true if you have pastors who have opted out of social security, because obviously they aren't going to have that benefit we aren't sure how long it'll be around, period. But, um, you know, if you aren't able to count on Social Security, then that's another reason to try to have some form of a retirement program through the church um, so that people don't get to retirement age and then all of a sudden realize that they really can't afford to retire. Um, and I know with missions programs and some things, I would suggest you try to build into your budgets maybe some additional funding so that if um, if you just go by what you're doing this year and all of a sudden you have some people come in and um, on deputation and some things trying to raise money, if you can have a little extra money in your missions budget to allow for taking on new missionaries throughout the year rather than always having to wait till the next year to put them into the budget um, can be helpful as well if you have an opportunity and the resources to do that.
Uh, the last thing I want to cover um, is capital budget. Um, actually, I have two more things, but uh, on the capital side of things, uh, a lot of churches can tend to sort of ignore capital budgets, and then all of a sudden they realize there's a lot of things that need to get done um, at the same time. So I would recommend that you schedule out maybe to a five to 10 year basis uh, what you think might need to be done from a capital improvement standpoint in um, future years. Um, you can imagine there's our facilities here, you have all the buildings, you have roofs, you have HVAC systems, parking lots, um, vehicles. Um, it really can help to try to um, spread that out. Also, if you have opportunities, um, even with vehicles, um, we were able to purchase two buses. We don't put a lot of miles on buses. We use them for our school. Um, I think our last set of buses, we had almost 20 years and one of them had about 105,000 miles. The other one had, I think, 85,000 miles. But when we decided to replace them, instead of going out and buying new buses, we bought two buses that had come off lease. And we basically paid for two buses what we would have paid for one new bus. And um, because of the amount of miles we put on them, it's, the buses will still last a number of years. So there's some things you can do also with your capital budget just to try to minimize the cost. Um, there's other things as far as trying to extend the life of your existing equipment um, and vehicles so that you're not having to replace them as often. Um, but I do recommend you try to schedule out your capital budget needs that way you can plan ahead, you can try to fund them early, or you can try to arrange for financing if you need to do that. But at least you aren't sort of caught all of a sudden, you realize four or five major projects need to be done all at once. Any questions on that? All right, the last thing is records retention. This wasn't on the outline, but I'm gonna throw it in there because um, I often get asked questions about record retention. Um, the general rule of thumb is seven years. Um, and for most things with the IRS, seven years will cover everything. There's some that are shorter, um, but if you just sort of use a rule of thumb of seven years, then you should be pretty well covered. Um, in most areas, there's a few exceptions where they recommend uh, that you keep um, some information 10 years. Usually it relates to contracts, leases, um, and some other things that where you may need to have it longer term just to be able to have the documentation available, uh, loan documents and some things you obviously you may need to keep over a longer period of time. Um, but I, if you use a, seven years as a standard rule of thumb, you aren't having to then keep track, okay, this is this, so that one's three years, that's, the, oh, that's five years. Um, so as long as you have the ability to keep information in storage, um, if you use the seven-year rule of thumb, you should be um, in pretty good shape. That is all I have. We still have a few minutes left for questions. Any other questions on what we covered or anything else? Yes. Um, so if you could give kind of a concept of how large inner city is for the question that I have. Um, but recognizing every church is going to be different. It's going to be a church priority thing, what core ministries are and things. Do you, does inner city... Um, have a budget or give money to men's ministry, women's ministry, things like that, or are they all self-funded where if the men want to do something, everybody has to chip in five bucks to do it or something like that. Like how does inner city, I totally get that every church is going to see it differently, but right. just for perspective. Um, we have some of that setups. Um, some of it's even a hybrid, what you suggested. Um, we do have budgets for adult Bible fellowship. We have a fall fest event that's open to the community. I don't know how many people we had this year, but we had 1,200 donuts and ran out about a half an hour before it ended. So um, we do several things. We have a summer fest event, which is fireworks and a bunch of things that we invite the entire community. And there's been years, I think we've had over a thousand people um, attend that. So we do things like that, and obviously we're paying for fireworks. All of that's budgeted, and we include that um, as part of that budget. Um, other things, um, you know, over the years we've had like sportsmen's dinners and all kinds of things. Um, we will set aside budgeted money for that, but there are a fair number of events. The Fall Fest, Summer Fest, we don't charge anything for anybody. Um, but like when we have our Labor Day, that Sunday evening we have a get-together picnic and a bunch of stuff, um, service and other events, um, we will charge people. We even did, um, we've sort of shifted from having 
a summer camp for the church at a distant location because people would tend not to attend because they couldn't be there the whole week or the couple of days didn't work out. So this, the last couple of years post-pandemic, we've actually had events all connected locally. Um, like we've gone to, um, we've had pickleball tournaments, we've had, you know, just a bunch of, um, there's a local, it's called Sportsway that has a lot of go-karts and putt-putt and all kinds of different activities. Um, but we'll charge, uh, you know, like $5 a person, $25 max per family or $20 max per family. Um, so we'll budget the part that we expect that the church will be paying and then realizing we'll have some money come in that will, you know, offset some of the cost. Um, but we do that a fair amount uh, throughout the year. Do you line item men's ministry, women's ministry, senior adult ministries? Um, we have, I think, about seven or eight that we line item in the detailed financials. But you do specific events. You don't do a general ministry and allow the men's ministry to spend that throughout the year how they do it. It all sort of, um, there's some of that we do. Some of it all rolls up under adult Bible fellowship. Um, but like teen camps, a separate line item. Junior camps, a separate line item. Um, the summer outing, the fall fest event. You know, some of the bigger items we will separate and have on separate light items but the rest of them we'll have under adult bible fellowship we'll get input from all the pastoral staff of what we're going to do for the year what we think that cost will be and then include it and then provide them with information you know as far as what we ended up spending and what we took in how does your church handle and budget and plan and do pastoral salary like how does it get set when people come in and also how to raise this work um, we sort of have a sort of a schedule as far as people coming in, unless they have experience and a lot of things before they come, then we'll factor that in. Um, we also will, um, we've done different methods of annual increases. Um, you probably realize that if people are in different pay ranges and everybody gets a 4% increase, then the people at the top are getting farther away from the people at the bottom. So um, in differing years, we have done sometimes percentage across the board pay increases. In other years, we may do like a dollar amount or put people in certain groups and have different dollar amounts. That way, people at the bottom may be getting more as a percentage increase, especially in years when you may have tougher economic times. Um, we will make adjustments because um, one thing we do try to keep from happening is the gap keeps getting farther and farther between people that are near the top and people at the bottom. Yes? Do you assess that like every couple of years to do a raises or do you have like a typical time frame, like three years? Uh, we review every year, every year before we do the budget. And we sort of look at the current you know, environment and what we think we can absorb into the budget, um, comparing prior years and then um, you know, at different times, then you'd make decisions on whether or not the increases are based on a percentage or dollar amounts, um, depending on the circumstances. But we've done really probably all three over the years, even since I've been involved. Um, it may be like a percentage, maybe a dollar amount, maybe groupings uh, or a combination. Is that actually like conversations with pastors and staff, or is that mostly like you and deacons that just say, hey, we're doing this? Um, executive committee. Which is? Um, it's a group of five plus the pastor and myself, but they're the five. Um, we're pastor and, and me are there, but they're the five. And then there may be recommendations from there. Um, and then um, it's approved by the executive committee. But they review it because um, we try to stay out of it because sort of beneficiary so you know we try to make sure we're not you know involved in that process so it is the executive committee that is involved in establishing annual compensation yes can you talk a little bit about what the church is allowed to do and not allowed to do in a retirement program um yeah generally um if there's sort of classified as self-employment, 
I mean, there are limits for, um, we have a 403B here, which is basically a 401K, but you see 403Bs more in a not-profit church environment. Um, but we basically have a 403B program and um, we give people, technically they have three options of where they want to put their money as far as investment options. Um, we have Vanguard, we have American funds, and we have equitable funds. And one reason we did that is, um, and I know it's sort of a luxury because of our size, but um, Vanguard is more where you invest and manage your own money. Um, so that's an option for people who are willing to take that on and are, and are comfortable doing it. Um, we also have um, American funds uh, set up because they do more of the managing for you. They charge a little more higher fee um, but if you're not comfortable managing your own funds, then you have that option. Um, equitable, we've had for a lot of years, but actually I don't think we've had anybody new go into that one. Um, it was one sort of a, that's carried over from past decades. Um, so really anybody coming in recently has all been in either American Funds or Vanguard. But that's how um, we have it set up so that it, day one you can start contributing to it on your own. Um, and then we have a program where there's employer contributions that begin after in their sixth year. Um, this sort of has a catch-up effect uh, for the credit of the five years you've been there, and then um, ongoing contributions after that. That answer the question. Yes. Cautionary tale for smaller churches. We experienced this recently in our church, where it's the thing that people can steal checks out of the mail so our treasurer wrote some checks no yeah right guess wrote a check to pay a utility bill and somehow in the mail or some utility company stole it and reduplicated all of a sudden we got two fifty five hundred dollar checks written from birmingham alabama that hit our account and treasurer comes to me and says pastor i'm gonna sit down and share this with you like we just had eleven thousand stolen from our account thankfully the bank is able to reverse that but then helped us to realize we need to change our checks, their checks themselves, so they wouldn't be as easy to reduplicate. Right. So the electronic printout is my signature, his signature was exactly like one of our checks. Yeah, that is, yeah, with copying equipment and everything, I mean, when I was in the law firm environment, we had a client accuse us of that at one point. And so we had to start tracing everything all the way back because checks would come in, they'd get, they'd get distributed internally, through Pitney Bowes, which was a third outsourcing company for all of the office services. And so we actually realized what was going on when we had a couple of clients sort of complain and accuse our accounting department. So we started following everything back, the whole process, and it was actually a U.S. mail employee, downtown post office was involved in the whole thing. They were taking them out of the envelopes, making copies of them, putting them back in the envelopes. And we, how we caught it is all of a sudden we realized that a lot of the ones that were coincidentally were envelopes that had been taped shut. And so then we had to track back, okay, where are they getting taped shut? And so we started with Pitney Bowes. We started checking the mail before they got it to see if it, and then we found out, well, it's already been taped shut there. So finally we went to the post office to pick up our mail and they were already taped at the post office. And they were able, and then what they do is a lot of times they get mules to go to the bank and cash them for them so that they're not the person at the bank doing it and aren't on camera and everywhere else. But they actually were able to tie it to people on camera and start tracing it all back. And we were able to clear our name as far as that we weren't responsible. But yeah, that's, that's happening more and more, especially with quality of copiers.